Thank you once again for tuning in to the Okinawa Karate Podcast. I'm Josh Simmers coming to you from the birthplace of Karate Okinawa, Japan. This is the first in what could be two or three part series called the Ishin Ryu Chronicles, where I sit down with Mr. Andy Sloan, who happens to be a sixth degree black belt in Ishin Ryu. This interview is about an hour and a half long, so I'm going to keep my intro nice and short. Andy's going to give us the rundown of his history as well as the history of Ishin Ryu. Like I said, this is probably going to be a a two or three part series and he's got a lot of information to share um so sit back enjoy if you have any questions or comments as always please send them to me at josh at okinawakratipodcast.com or on instagram twitter facebook you know all the social media platforms and if you're looking to reach out to andy uh, please do so on facebook s-l-o-a-n-e is his last name first name andy s-l-o-a-n-e thank you and enjoy the podcast Thank you for tuning in to the Okinawa Karate Podcast. Josh Simmers coming to you from the birthplace of karate, Okinawa, Japan. I'm very excited today to sit down with my friend, Sensei Andy Sloan. Uh, you might have heard me talk about him if you watched the video that I posted on New Year's Eve from the Asato Dojo. Andy Sensei gave us a two-hour Ishin Ryu seminar. It was my first time ever going through any type of Ishin Ryu training, but I've had a bit of a soft spot for a while about Ishin Ryu, mainly because here on Okinawa... The style itself is very small. As a matter of fact, if there was a, such a thing as an endangered species list for Ryus, Ishin Ryu should be on it. Um, there's more practitioners off-island than on-island, but we are very fortunate because one of the best that we have is right here on Okinawa. So without okay. further ado, Mr. Andy Sloan. Well, thank you very much for thank having you. me. I appreciate the kind words. <laughs> I mean it, man. I mean it. Well, thanks. Um, so what would you like to know? I'd like to know... Your background that got you started in martial arts, first of all. Okay. Um, because I know a little bit about your history, but I want everyone else to understand where you started, where you got involved with Ishin Ryu. Okay. And then the training that you've done um, from your beginnings in Ishin Ryu up to basically present day and touching on the history of the style as much as you want. Um, and then just tell everybody what's great about Ishin Ryu. Why should we be in, involved? Why should we be uh, concerned that it's such a small uh, group here on Okinawa, and, and see where the conversation takes us. Okay, well, um, my first martial art that I studied was judo, and I started when I was 11 years old, and uh, so that would be January of 1991 I started, so this month okay. I've been in continuous martial arts training for 28 years, and um, I, the middle school that I went to in uh, northwestern Louisiana Shreveport, uh, was um, half the year you'd do the normal PE stuff in one semester, and then the other semester you could choose between judo or archery. They had a program that was called uh, Life Sports, and the, the female uh, PE teacher, there was two, it was a man and a woman, and uh, she was the, the girls' basketball coach and the girls' volleyball coach, but she also was a showdown in judo, and she did archery too, you know, a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't know, mm -hmm. you know how skilled at archery she was, but she, she taught those two courses as well. And uh, so I chose judo my sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade year. Hmm. So I dabbled in that a little bit. And then once I got out of middle school and couldn't do that with her per se anymore, um, uh, my grandmother, who I was living with at the time, she found this guy that was, 
I believe he was like a contemporary of my judo teacher's teachers. Because uh-huh. she used to train with these two guys that were brothers. And then this other guy, his name was Jack Stovall, was kind of like a contemporary or maybe even a classmate of theirs in their judo group, yeah. I think. But again, that's years and years ago. And I, I really didn't care so much about who was who in the judo lineage and all that back in those days. I was still a kid, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, so... Um, once I got out of the eighth grade and couldn't really do that anymore, I was doing the judo with uh, Jack Stovall for maybe a couple of months. I really mm-hmm. don't remember exactly, like the summer, fall of 1993 time mm-hmm. frame. And, um, well, I went to the Louisiana State Fair in October of 93, and they had a booth set up for the local karate school, and um, it just happened to be uh, Harvey Kennedy's dojo there in Shreveport, uh, Karate USA. And he, I'm sure, was given free lessons, two-week memberships to everybody that put their name in the drawing, yeah, yeah, you know. But, yeah. you know, they called me up a week or two later and said, oh, yeah, you won, you know, two free weeks yeah. and stuff. And so I went down there, and November the 1st of 1993 was my first class in Ishindu Karate. Oh, okay. And so that's how I got started. And um, I was, for about a week or two at least, maybe a little bit longer, maybe a little bit less, I can't remember exactly, but there was a little bit of overlap where I was doing judo and karate at the same time. Okay. Like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I was doing judo, and then Tuesday, Thursday, I was doing karate or, or something. I can't remember the exact setup, but it was it was a little bit of overlap for a couple of weeks. Huh. But okay. I kind of let that fall by the wayside, and I stuck with karate. I, I didn't, I, I knew you started judo, I, I guess I... Mm-hmm. I didn't know that you started it in, in even before high school. Yeah, I was um, in the sixth grade when I started. Your high school? I, I don't know of any other high schools I've heard of that had judo and no, archery. No, it was, a jun- it was uh, I mean, yeah. a junior high. The school was kindergarten through eighth grade. It's Herndon Magnet School in Belcher, Louisiana. And uh, Chris Belk is the woman that was the uh, judo teacher. And um, one, when the, te- the principal that, that was there at the time that I was going to school retired, the new principal came in and outlawed that. Uh, I said, also, oh, it's a contact sport or some nonsense, you know. And yeah. I said, well, at least with judo, you have mats to land on and stuff. Yeah. It's not like football or something where the purpose is to clash into the guy as hard as you can yeah. and keep him from running the ball. Or, so that principle... But, um, so the new principle did away with it. But yeah, so I had a, we can, a, a little bit of... Judo I'll safely training. say that that principle had no understanding no, of, the, no, of the means of the, of the training then. Yeah, but, and exactly. That's, no, seemingly no knowledge of martial arts, yeah, any kind of yeah, appreciation yeah. for it at all. Maybe now he he or she does, but yeah. at that time, n- not so. Um, <clears throat> so, started Ishinryu then, uh, what was the year again? 93. 93, and that was when you were in high school. Mm-hmm. I was a freshman um, in high school, and I was 14 years old. Okay. I've been 14 for about a month. And was it a big school, big dojo? Uh, he was fairly well, well, I'd probably say more than fairly well established, Mr. Kennedy, Harvey Kennedy. He um, he started Ishindu Karate training when he was going to college at Louisiana Tech University in Ruston, Louisiana. In uh, October of 1967 was his first class. Okay. The gentleman that brought Ishindu Karate from Michigan was uh, Bill Pogue to Louisiana ah, in 1967. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, Dr. Pogue started in uh, 1965 in the Detroit area with uh, Ken Pittaway and uh, Doug Knoxon, who were students of well, Knoxon was a student of a guy named Jim Chapman, and Chapman had been a student of Don Nagel, and Dr. Pittaway had been a student of Nagel. Okay. And so Chapman and, uh, not Chapman, but uh, Knoxon and Pittaway decided to start a school in 1963, and it was probably the first karate school of any style in the state of Michigan. Okay. So when 
Mr. Pogue started, it was um, uh, some of his seniors were people like Willie Adams, and uh, I think, uh, I can't remember honestly if Norbert Donnelly was senior to him or if he was senior to Donnelly. I'd have to go okay. back and check All right. and stuff. But those are well-known names up there um, in Michigan. But anyway, so he moved down as a round belt to Louisiana, Mr. Pope did, to go to college at Louisiana Tech. It was called something else then, but it's Louisiana Tech since about like 1969 or something. But at any rate, um, so Mr. Kennedy started with him and uh, was in his very first class and has been with him since 1967. And they're still active. So almost everybody in the Northeast Louisiana, or maybe even all over Louisiana, Arkansas, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, East Texas, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say Oklahoma per se, but you know something like yeah. that. Uh, that whole region uh, can trace their lineage. The majority of people in Ishinu Karate can trace their lineage back to Bill Pogue. Okay. So uh, some of his senior people was Larry Dreer and Harvey Kennedy and Ken Green and uh, but Mr. Dreer. I think he's not quite active anymore. I think due to health reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Kennedy's still going strong. Now, somewhere. how old is is Kennedy Sensei today. He is, um, I think he's 70 now. Okay. Still teaching. Still has a dojo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he, he got out of college, I think, in 1971 and moved back to Louisiana, to uh, Shreveport from Ruston, which is like 90 minutes away. Okay. To the west of Shreveport. Ruston is east of Shreveport, so he moved back west to Shreveport from Ruston and uh, set up a school in Bossier City, Louisiana. And oh, um, I have a friend that lived there. Yeah, Shreveport, Bossier yeah. are separated by the Red River. Yep, this is yep, sister yep. cities, basically. So anyway, and then, uh, you know, he eventually moved the school from where it was in Bossier to Shreveport uh, proper in uh, Urie Drive in uh, late 1991, I want to say. Yeah. And I think he had the grand opening in 92, January okay. 92. And then I came along in November of 93. That's okay. I started. Right. And um, I trained with him. Well, coincidentally, my mother remarried uh, the day that I started training <laughs> in Shadu Karate. And my stepfather worked for the FDIC. Now, he's retired now, but he worked for the FDIC for ages. And uh, he, they were closing the Shreveport office, and they relocated all the employees over to Dallas. So um, I was going to have to move to Dallas at some point. Okay, I see. Or to the Dallas Metroplex yeah. anyway. I didn't, we didn't live in Dallas proper. But... Um, they had a house built in McKinney, but I didn't want to move in the middle of my freshman year in high school, and so my mother let me live there with my grandmother. So mm-hmm. I stayed there and completed my ninth grade year in Shreveport, went to Northwood High School my ninth grade year, and then at the end of the school year, my grandfather drove me over to Texas. Okay. I've lived in Texas ever since, but we still went back to Louisiana all the time. It was only like 225 miles away from yeah. my house in Shreveport to where we lived in McKinney, and uh, we used to go back once a month and I would every other month whatever it was and for the weekends or something and then uh, I would go for school breaks and stuff when I was still in high school you know and then of course as I got a little older and started working it was a little more difficult to go but I still went so I never stopped being a student at Harvey Kennedy School okay. up until I was a showdown okay you know but he but when you were in Texas you had access to another dojo? Or oh, yeah. I supplemented time? my martial arts training with other styles. Plus, I went to the library constantly. Oh, but I, not Ishin Ryu? Uh, yes and no. Oh, okay, I, I okay. trained in Taekwondo at a couple of different schools. Uh, one place in McKinney. Uh, the guy that taught there was uh, Chauncey Reed. It was a black gentleman. And I don't remember if he'd been in the military or not, but he was a very good martial artist, as I recall. Very nice man. 
Um, I don't know if he's still teaching. I know he, if he is, he's moved from where it was. He's got another school somewhere else, and he may be completely retired by now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, and then I also trained briefly. This is just brief, you know, mm-hmm. training mm-hmm. in these schools. I didn't really go very far in them, but I was, you know, trying to learn as much as I could about various things because there wasn't a big issue presence in in the Dallas Metroplex back mm-hmm. in the early and mid '90s, like that. I did go 1994-95 time frame. Uh, for a few months, I never did really keep track of it because, again, I was a teenager, and I just yeah. you know, most teenagers yep. don't think about yep. keeping track of stuff to the nth degree. You know that I got that uh, interested in, in stuff like that a little bit later as I got older. But at any rate, it was 1994-95 time frame that I trained with uh, Bob Christensen in the uh, Dallas area. He had a school in Capel, Texas, but he had like a satellite class at a at a gym, mm-hmm. uh, weightlifting facility mm-hmm. in Louisville as I recall and my mother would take me she found a she found a family that had a teenager that was about my age that was going to that school and um, they lived in Plano which was just south of us like 10 minutes or so and we would because uh, my I had two younger brothers and she didn't want to keep them out too late you know mm-hmm. so this is the better setup mm-hmm. for, instead of driving all the way to Louisville or Coppell which is like a 40 mile one way t- oh. trip you know, Texas is really yeah, spread out. Yeah. Right? So, um, anyway, uh, for a while, that's what we were doing. She'd drop me off with this family uh, down in Plano, and I would ride with them to the class and then meet my mom later that evening after the class, and I'd go back home with my mom. But then eventually that, that kid quit going uh, for whatever the reason, I don't recall. And uh, so she did take me directly to the school, but again, I had two younger brothers, mm-hmm. and they needed to not be out late and get up for school. And of course, I had school too, so mm-hmm. I, I didn't train with Sensei Christensen yeah. too too long, yeah. and I never got any promotions from him or anything. But I always credit him for harping on the basics with me. So you know, I always give credit where yep. credit is due. Yep. So he's my second Ishindu teacher. Even though I was still a student of Harvey Kennedy, meanwhile, like yeah. I said, I never stopped being a student of Harvey Kennedy, and I supplemented my training with the Taekwondo at the one place in McKinney. In the summer of 96, I think it was, I went to another place, another Taekwondo school in Allen, Texas. I think the teachers were Mark and Barbara Sustair, I want to say, and mm-hmm. they had that okay. Taekwondo, uh, it was Karate for Kids, that, that not okay. syndicated, uh, like a copyrighted yep. program kind of thing, yep. you know. Uh, but it was it was nice, and uh, I was a I was a blue belt in Ishindu, I think at the time, and they that I went to that particular school, and they let me keep my my belt for that, and that was a seventh Q, you know. But for them, it was like fourth from black or something in yeah, that particular system, yeah. and so but it was pretty nice that they let me keep that belt on, and you know. But uh, yep. I also, like I said, I, I went to the library all the time, the city library there in McKinney, and I just devoured any martial arts book I could find about. I wanted to learn. Yeah, that's interesting. You got the bug then, just just because. I mean, even before before you had the opportunity to to train in judo, did you have any interest or desire? Yeah, well, you know, growing up in the eighties, like I did, I was born at the tail end of seventy nine, October of nineteen seventy nine, and growing up in the eighties, you know, the kids would watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons, and they'd see the Karate Kid movies, and Bruce Lee movies and all yeah. that stuff. So yeah, it's the big inspiration yeah, for everybody. It's, it's the same story, yeah, it pulled right? Pulled so many people yeah, exactly. in, gave so, interest anyway. Yeah. So that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> Chuck Norris, of course, was having his heyday. Yeah, as a movie star. 
you know? Yep. Uh, so all that, yep. of course, I was interested in it, but I didn't know where I could take it or how I could. And then when they had judo at my middle school, I'm like, well, this is great. Yeah. Sure, I'll take that. And again, I didn't go very far, you know. And with only doing one semester each of my sixth, seventh, and eighth grade years, you know, you only, what breaks down to about, I don't know, what, 18 months of training if you tallied it up yeah, total, you know, over the course of two and a half, started, three years, so. you know, and then I had a few extra months with that other gentleman, I think it's Bob Stovall, or Jack Stovall, rather, was his name, a fairly well-known judo person in the Shreveport, Bossier area, as I understand it. But again, I don't know too much about his history. Um, you know, I'm, I moved back to Louisiana briefly, as a matter of fact, actually, um, in June of 2001 for about seven months, and I taught for Mr. Kennedy. Okay. But by then, I was no longer his student. I had, as a shodan, um, I was invited to come train with Ed Johnson, and he lived in Dallas at the time. Okay. And uh, he's from Fort Worth, but lived in Dallas, and then eventually he moved back to Fort Worth, where he is now. But um, so. My Q ranks, I got all of my Q ranks from Harvey Kennedy, except for the Blue Belt promotion, which was 7th Q, uh, coincidentally in Ishinu. I got that from the gentleman that was teaching at the community center with a no-name style. You know, yeah. It was just coincidentally the same rank or same colored belt in his belt sequence, too, and he promoted me to Blue Belt. And so I guess... Mr. Kennedy uh, assumed that I'd been promoted by an Ishinu person in Texas, and I didn't try to hide the fact that I didn't. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's a moot point now. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. But I knew more than what I was required to know for the level I, I was, but it took me a longer time than the average student to make Shodan because I lived 200 miles from my teacher, yeah, yeah. and I wasn't going to the class all the time, even though, of course, I was practicing. It was obvious that I was still practicing, and then I'd go back to the school over there when I could, and... And then I just polish up and learn new things and go back and yep. work on them back in Texas and stuff and go back and that's the way it was. And so I made a one Q promotion from the gentleman there in Texas and then my first Q uh, got from a guy named Jared Blackwell. And uh, Mr. Blackwell is another uh, legitimate addition to your lineage uh, that can be traced back to Tom Lewis who was over here in 1959 to 1960. But his teacher, uh, Mr. Blackwell's teacher, when he was younger was a gentleman named Victor Smith and he lived in uh, New Hampshire, Derry, New Hampshire, as I recall. And uh, he's now retired, and I think he lives in Arizona or New Mexico or somewhere. But um, he used to teach up at a Boys and Girls Club, as I understand it, for many, many years. Okay. Like two decades or more, even, you know. Yeah. And so, anyway, he's a legitimate uh, person. But I didn't want the people that I was associated with in Louisiana to even have any sort of inkling that I was being untruthful about having been promoted to Shodan in Texas mm -hmm. by a guy they had no clue who he was, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they necessarily would have thought that I was, but mm -hmm. I just I just felt it was better um, for me personally to retest for Shodan. So even though I did make Shodan in October of 2000, the very next month I retested with Mr. Kennedy and Bill Pogue and all these other guys. So I got all these, like, Sixth, seventh, eighth bond signing my certificate, you know. So yeah. Oh, that's cool. No that's cool. But they, but Mr. Blackwell, um, he had sent my black belt certificate. He gave me kind of like an interim certificate too, with just his signature and his brother's, his late brother's uh, signature on it. And they sent this other one that they wanted to present to me also, but they sent it back up to Mr. Smith of New Hampshire, and so he signed it too. Uh -huh. So yeah, it's it's totally legit. There yeah. was no question. Yeah. But yeah. I just felt it's like, well, you know. 
I, I yeah. care about these people's opinion about me, and they yep. don't know Mr. Blackwell. So even though I know the guy is legitimate, they don't know that, and I don't want anybody to be able yep. to say that yep. it's not. Yep. So let me just go ahead and do this other. Yep. And so that's why I did it. Uh, but I was the only person out of all the black belt candidates wearing a black belt for the showdown test. Everybody uh, else is wearing a brown belt, right, so they right. let me wear my showdown. And, and yep. I just got this big, nice certificate from Mr. Yep. Kennedy and Pogue and all these folks. Cool. And it's on my um, it's on my uh, Facebook photo album. All right. And then, uh, so at that showdown test, short story long, <laughs> uh, Ed Johnson was there. And uh, I had met him before a couple of times, but um, I was still, I was into the history and stuff by that point in time because uh, I was, you know, a young adult and everything. But... Um, at that particular test in November 2000, he invited me to come train with him because I, I guess I didn't realize it up until that point that he lived like 30 minutes from me. Oh, geez. So it really made much more sense. Yeah. Not that, not that there was anything wrong with me training with Mr. Kennedy and keeping that whole scenario, but you know, it would just, to me, I wanted to continue on and I didn't know how long it would be before I could get back to Shreveport and stuff. So I just felt it was better for me to uh, go train with Sensei Johnson since yeah. I had been invited. And it doesn't seem to have ever been an issue for Mr. Kennedy. It's not necessarily anything that he and I talked about, but we, I, I can truthfully and confidently say that there was no hard feelings mm-hmm. because, you know, I've got a letter from him saying, you know, you're always welcome in my dojo and mm-hmm. he's very proud of me and all these things. So I just wanted to make my teachers proud and I just wanted to continue to learn and grow as a martial artist. And so That's when cute. I had the opportunity to go train with Sensei Johnson, who actually trained with Master Shimabuku here in Okinawa when he was in the Marines, you know, I, I jumped at the chance. Yep. Yep. So, and really, I mean, who can who can blame you for that? Uh, kind nobody. Of thing? Nobody. Yeah, that's so, that's, that's good. But so I've been with Ed Johnson uh, since November of two thousand. Okay. So eighteen years of my twenty five years in Ishindu, I've been training with him, and he promoted me to Nidon all the way up. To he's me. still in Texas, mm-hmm. Fort Worth. I yeah. just talked to him this morning, as a matter of fact. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he'll be seventy eight. I want to say, yeah, I think seventy eight this uh, year, April the first. Still teaching, still has a dojo. Well, he doesn't or... have a dojo, and he hasn't had a dojo in decades even, okay. but he still goes around the country and okay. teaches at his students' dojos and things, and places uh, that if anybody brings him in to give seminars and stuff yep. like that. But I was in, I was very fortunate to actually be in the last group of people that actually learned under him in a classroom-type setting. He had, uh, at the time I started training with him, he had an apartment that uh, had a weight room gym type facility that had kind of like a little stage or platform area that didn't have any exercise equipment on it. All the exercise equipment was a little bit further out, but this little spot was vacant and it was, it was a fairly good size. You'd get like four students on there and you could go up and down the floor doing some things, you know, and he'd walk around and critique and correct and so on. But yeah, so I did that with him from November of 2000 until I moved back to Louisiana in June of 2001 and then, like I say, it was only briefly that I was back to Louisiana and I moved back to Texas and joined the workforce because I was tired of going to college. Um, I just wanted to not go to school anymore. Yeah. And I was <laughs> focused on other things. I probably should have just gone ahead and finished my bachelor's degree. But, you know, I attended LSU Shreveport, Louisiana State University in Shreveport one semester. And um, I just, but I didn't finish my bachelor's degree. And I moved back to Texas in February of 2002. And resumed my training with Sensei Johnson, 
I mean, I ne never necessarily quit being his student. I just was, again, geographically separated mm -hmm. from my teacher. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he tested me for NEDON in February of 2002, and then uh, April of 04 for Sondon, and uh, was it December, no, uh, April of 06 for Yongdan, and December of 2010 for Godon, and March of 2016 for Rokodon. Nice. And, uh, well, I've been nice. with him ever since. Yeah, you know, like yeah. Like I say, it's 18 years. Finally, I decided, you know, let me look into this Navy thing and see what that's about. And so I felt it was a good decision for me, and uh, I joined the Delayed Entry Program in February of 06. You know, I put down on my dream sheet, you know, to go to great to um, to Rota, Spain, or to Washington, D.C., or, of course, Okinawa. Yeah. That was one of the main yeah. reasons, really, underlying that I wanted yeah. to join the military was to become, uh, or to have the possibility to come yeah. to Okinawa. Because my sensei had been here, of course, when he was in the Marines, like I mentioned. And uh, I just thought that would be my best opportunity to come to Okinawa is to be able to be stationed here if possible. But um, I did not get anything that I asked for. They sent me, <laughs> I wanted Okinawa, and they gave me Oklahoma. So, you know, I was kind of bummed about that. You know, I didn't really join the Navy to go three and a half hours up the highway. You know, but so he said, "Well, that's close enough." Yeah, you know, starts Oklahoma, with an okay and ends with an A, but that's the only similarities I tell you. But you know, it was not a bad duty station for your first time, and uh, I got to go home on the weekends periodically to visit my mom and my stepdad, my friends, and my students that I still had in the Dallas area, and my sensei, and and I was there for about a year and eight months. Out of uh, when when you get shore duty in the Navy, first right out of the box. You're there for two years, wherever your duty station mm. is, before you mm. rotate to sea duty. Mm. And then depending on your job, you have a longer shore duty and longer sea duty rotation. So my particular job, um, they've standardized it now, but it was fairly close to what it is now, even back when I first came in, at three years of sea duty and four years of shore duty. But like I mentioned, when you get shore duty first, you get two years, wherever it is. Well, this billet for Okinawa popped up down here at Light Beach at ESG-7. Expeditionary Strike Group 7, and, uh, you know, I was just on fire for that, of course, yeah. and they knew, uh, my supervisors, LPOs, and everybody knew that I was into karate, and I was teaching up there in Oklahoma City and all that stuff, yeah. and so they knew, we got to make this happen for this guy, so I really had a guy who kind of looked out for me. It worked out where I did get those orders. Uh, as it happened, um, the detailer said, you know, it's a three-year billet. Um, if you take unaccompanied orders, it's two years, and I was married at the time, but, um, you know, I since got divorced, but um, I didn't want to take the unaccompanied billet, of course. I wanted my uh, wife at the time to come with me, and I was in E3, which is uh, yeoman seaman, and so um, I came over here basically right at my two-year mark. They said, it's a three-year billet, and you got to have three, year, three years left on your contract. Well, coincidentally, I had signed up for four years with a one-year extension. So, mm -hmm. like I mentioned, I got here right at my two-year mark. It worked out perfectly. Mm -hmm. So it took me two years of being in the Navy to get to Okinawa, but I got here. Oh, that's fantastic. And then it's worked out where I you know, have been very fortunate to spend quite a lot of time here, uh, which is not very common in the military anymore. So what year was this when you got here? I got here June the 8th of 2008. 2008. Yep. Okay. And at the time, well, when you got here, at that age and at that experience level and rank in the yeah, I was in, a young don. In, in Ishinryu, did you uh, immediately try to find dojos? Did you already know who to look uh, for? Yeah, I knew who to look for. I knew, that, uh, I knew that Master Uezu, who's the son-in-law of Tatsuo Shimabuku, the founder, was no longer really teaching. 
Um, he was still alive and still uh, living on his own. Um, but I knew he wasn't having a school anymore, but I knew some of his people were still around, and I knew that, uh, or, or I, I thought that some of his people were still around. There was a couple other people that I thought still had dojos, and I found out after the fact that no, they didn't. So really, there was only two. There was Kichiro Shimabuku, who was the oldest son of the founder, and uh, he'll be 80 next month, as a matter of fact. So he was, you know, just had just turned 70, basically, when I got, mm -hmm. uh, or 71, whatever, uh, at the time. And then, of course, uh, Weichi Sensei, so okay. Weichi, who so, had been a student of both Weizu Sensei and Kichiro Sensei back in the day. Since you let's let's jump into that, then let's okay. jump into um, so how I got started with him. Well, oh. I'd like to because this is the first time uh, we <clears throat> mentioned the, the Shimabukuro name, so I think it's only right that we we talk about the founder of Ishin Ryu, mm -hmm. uh, just so we can get that understanding. Um, who is the founder? Uh, like I say, uh, Tatsuo Shimabuku. Tatsuo was a nickname that he got in the late 1940s. His real name and legal name was Shinkichi, S-H-I-N-K-I-C-H-I. And later when he had two sons, he split up his name and gave half of his name to each of his two sons. Kichiro is the oldest son, and Shinsho is the younger son. And a lot of the Americans, they had a difficulty saying Shinsho, and so they would call him Siso, C-I-S-O. And even then, some Americans didn't quite hear that correctly, and they were calling him Cecil, C-E-C-I-L. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of American guys, uh, again, not trying to put any of them down, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that's what they heard, and that's mm -hmm. what they were calling him. Mm -hmm. I guess they thought that's what other folks were calling him, but it, Cecil was what most of them called him, and Cecil was a couple of them. Yeah. You know, okay. I won't name names unless you really want me to, but again, <laughs> it's not meant to be derogatory anyway. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, Tatsuo Shimabuku, he trained in, uh, you know, what is classified today as Shorin Ryu and Goju Ryu. Um, he was primarily a student of Chotoku Kyan, a uh, famous master, and uh, who had multiple teachers himself and had kind of a large curriculum for the day, mm -hmm. you know, back in the 30s and in the, in the 20s and stuff, because he had kind of an amalgamation of different kata that he had not, I mean, it's not his fault that he collected them, but that through his, his uh, various teachers, he had these various kata, like eight or nine that he taught. And so he was mainly, Tatsuo Sensei was mainly a student of Kyan, but at the opportunities that he had to kind of dabble in the other things, he did. Mm -hmm. And so his first formal teacher, though, was for maybe about five or six months, was Motoku Choyu, as a matter of mm -hmm. fact, okay. down in Naha okay. at the Karate Kenkyukai, or Tore Kenkyukai, whatever you prefer to call okay. it, back then, because the name hadn't been standardized as Karate in those days, it was Tore. And so, uh, anyway, it, um, the the lessons that he learned in that environment, because it was like a shared, I don't know if, how much you know about the Kenkyukai that was down there in the 20s like that, started in 1924, and Tatsuo started with, with them too, and he was about 16, later that same year, and probably bled over in 1925, but what he learned there really had little to no bearing on what became Ishindu Karate 20 plus years later, but uh, he did say that he started his formal training when he was 16, and uh, that's when it had to have been. And his son-in-law, uh, Master Weizu, that I mentioned, um, also said that Tatsuo Sensei had trained with Motoku, but he had mistakenly said that it was Motoku Choki. Yeah, okay. And, uh, but at that time, in 1924, <coughs> Motoku Choki was living in Osaka, so it couldn't have been it. So it had to be Motoku Choyu, who was the okay. only other Motoku brother who was known for martial arts. Okay. And yep. he was the heir to the Motobu family martial art, as you know, Motobu Budinti. And um, 
so anyway, they had this shared learning environment. It was a dojo that was set up. I don't know necessarily who bought the property or whatever, but it was shared by uh, Miyagi Chojun and Hanashiro Chomo and Mabuni Kenwa and mm. Motobu Choyu. And so um, some of the Americans, they had heard also that Tatsuo had studied with Motobu Choyu, but they got the name wrong. You know, as Americans yep. didn't, again, not meant to be yep. derogatory. They just didn't have the name yep. right. Like Steve Armstrong, the late Armstrong sensei, he, he put in his book, it was Gajoku Choyu. Well, there is no such name. It was Motobu Choyu. Mm, see? Mm, mm. And Adventula sensei out in California, too. He'd heard the story. And Tatsuo sensei probably, as Adventula says, did not tell a whole lot of people that because he really didn't seem to have much bearing on what Tatsuo created later, but technically okay. speaking, if you really want to be technical, yes, he did start with multiple Choyu down there. That was kind of a big deal yeah, yeah. with all those illustrious folks. And so, um, uh, Kyan Sensei was in the mix at some point. I mean, everybody that was anybody in martial arts probably came through there, yep. and, you know, but it was supposed to be like a shared learning environment, as I understand it. Nobody was supposed to really okay, I'm going to take you as my private student kind of thing, but I think that's kind of what contributed to the downfall of the place. Okay. I, I mean, yep, yep. you know, speculation, of course. Yep, yep. But uh, at any rate, uh, that's that's not an easy uh, journey down to Naha that's, from this area correct. of Ireland, right? So <clears throat> yeah. it didn't stay very long that Tatsuo was training down there. and uh, But his uncle, who was a... Then again, a lot of the Okinawan karate history is oral, so... Unfortunately, there are no ways to confirm some of this stuff because it's very, you probably found out for yourself, it's very difficult to do yes. any kind of research here because the government systems that they have set up, some of them are not really comparable to what we have in the States where yeah. we can just go down and get public information on property records or tax records or family records or whatever. You, you just yeah. can't do that here. Uh, not without power of attorney or, you know, some kind of real legal reason you hire a private investigator or something, you know. And uh, so it's it's kind of difficult to find out certain yeah. things. So yeah. by and large, some of our history, as would be the same with any of the styles here, their history is oral. So the oral tradition is is that Master Shimabuku's maternal uncle uh, was a school principal in Ishikawa. And uh, so he would journey to his uncle's house periodically. Again, we don't know the frequency of this um, or the number of years that he was doing this, but he would tr go to his uncle's house for lessons to become a fortune teller. Okay. Sumuchi in Okinawa language or Sanjin so uh, in, okay, in Japanese. Okay. Right? Which, if you look at the words, it means like a book person and they study the I Ching and, you know, stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a sumuchi, a fortune teller, and so he learned how to do that. And then his uncle had gone to China to learn this once upon a time. You know, I don't know exactly. Uh, I, I even tried to go to the uh, city office over here to find out, uh, just to see if we could get the names of some of the principals, so we could try to at least confirm that this guy was actually there. Like, yeah. You know, because yeah, we'd yeah. like we'd hate to find out that no, that's not really the story. But the story is, is that his uncle was a school principal at Ishikawa High School and lived in Agena, which is a couple of village over where, from where Tatsuo lived in Kyan or Bushikawa, actually. Yeah. Uh, and so he later moved to Kyan Village, which is now Kinaka. Since at least the eighties, they combined the two villages across the street from one another. 
But uh, at any rate, so he learned how to be a fortune teller from his uncle and began to do that as an adult and, and you know, was fairly well known for that in addition to his karate. But, uh, yeah, so his uncle wrote him a letter of introduction, they say, to go train with Kyan. Okay. So some people uh, have the opinion that, you know, well, Tatsuo was a farmer and he was a commoner and he wouldn't have been able to train with these high-class people. Well, again, as you probably know, it's about who you know. Yeah, it's not yeah, so much about yeah. what station in life you are. So if he had an in with somebody that could get him in there, you know, I don't see why he yeah. shouldn't be believed that that's who he trained right, with, right. with Kyan. But the uncle that wrote the letter for him was not, he didn't practice. He was not really known for martial arts, but he supposedly had dabbled in some Chinese martial arts when he was there <clears throat> okay. doing whatever, you know. Okay. So, but he was not well known. So that, that training with his uncle would be considered informal training. So when he was about 13, Tatsuo started training in informal lessons with his uncle. Mm -hmm. And then about 16 is when he went down there to Mokobu Choyu's place. Mm -hmm. And then a couple, three years later. So there's confusion and uh, argument, of course, uh, ad nauseum about yeah. various aspects of any style's history. Um, but the common theory is that uh, Tatsuo Sensei started with Kyan in about 1932. And okay. that was based on Sensei Advencula, who interviewed Master Shimabuku's youngest son, who got this information from his mother, Tatsuo's mm. widow, in 1984. Okay. You know, 40-plus years after these events, 60-plus yeah. yeah. years after these events, you know. So, yeah. yes, the wife is around. Yes, the wife can potentially know what she's talking about. Yeah. But she was not. My stance has always been that she was not the martial artist. It was not her history. Yeah. to need to keep it straight to the letter. So I think perhaps she was not quite correct about the year that she said that Tatsuo started with Kyan. And the reason I say that is because not only did she say that the year was 1932, she said that it was the year that she and Tatsuo got married. So I'll give her the benefit of the doubt and say that it was the year that they got married, because it probably was. But the legal record, according to the, the family register for Master Ueza that I have a copy of, says they got married in January of 1927. Is, who who did she say this to? She gave this information. So, Advincula Sensei, who do you think that there's a pot? Because she, I can promise you this, she did not, unless she speaks fluent English, she did not say 1932. She would have said it. No, in, she didn't tell him this. She gave the information to her son yeah, Shinsho, okay. who was good friends with Advincula Sensei yeah. since you know since he was first stationed yeah. here in '58, and uh, you no, know was friends. I'm with just mean so it's easy, you know. Well, Very I don't, easy to I don't get know. dates um, when you go from, we're in Showa now, right? Heisei. No, no, we're in Heisei. Yeah. It was Showa. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the uh, a number gets well, put in the wrong order or it's very easy at but the again, it's not, with dates. It's, it's not to discredit anybody. I try no, to take as many that. details yeah. from yeah. everybody as possible and try to put them together and say, okay, now what's the most likely scenario based on what we can absolutely prove? Yeah. Now, yeah. like I say, I've got an official document that's Master Weizu's family register that has some information about Tatsuo in it because he married into Tatsuo's family. And it says that Tatsuo and his wife got married in January 1927. So if she was correct about the year that they got, I mean, if it was the year that they got married that he started with Kyan, it was five years earlier than what she told Shinsho, her son, 
who relayed that information to Mr. Vincula. Yeah. You know, so again, it's, I'm not, I don't to... mean to be, you know, at odds nope, with some people, nope. but some folks, they want to say, well, she was the wife and she knew everything. Well, yep. no, she didn't necessarily yep. know everything. And I'm not trying to be derogatory to Mrs. Shinobu. Sure, sure. Yep. You know, I can forget stuff. Yep. I mean, like I say, it wasn't her training history. Yep. So why should she be expected to know it to the letter? So at the time that he started this, so let, let's, if, if we can, I don't want to jump ahead here, but I'm curious to know when he created, founded, or named Ishin Ryu, if we can, if we, okay, so I don't want to, I don't want to skip over any of the history of it. <clears throat> well, I'll skip over a little bit, but the highlights I'll give you real quick. Yeah. I mean, where, where did this name come from? And is that the first name he had no. for what he's? Todd or stuff. Oh, it's my understanding. No. Okay. So, like I say, he was mainly a student of Kyan Chotoku, and nobody knows for certain what the reason why he quit being his student. But in about 1939, he did go to the Philippines and worked for going, you know, close to two years there. Um, as many Okinawans migrated to yeah, various places because yeah, you know yeah. he had a growing family yeah. and to pay for the things that needed to be paid for and to raise his family and stuff they felt yeah. it in their best interest to have him go to the Philippines so yep. he went they say to Davao I guess that's how you pronounce it I I'm, sure I'm, I'm, you know but anyway uh, Davao City in the Philippines they had a big Okinawan population over there and uh, he worked there for probably a year and a half something like that came back over here in 41 had his uh, son, second son, in March of 42, Shinsho that I mentioned. Kichiro was born in February 39, previous okay. to that. And so um, we got a picture of Kichiro as a baby being held by Tatsuo in 1939. And uh, so I, th I thought that was a really nice picture. But at any rate, so he came back from the Philippines in, in uh, mid-41, seemingly. And uh, now, meanwhile, Motobuchoki moved back from Osaka in 1942, mm. and so he closed his dojo in in Osaka or in uh, Tokyo, the Daidokan, and moved back to Osaka. And then, after a few more months into 42, moved back to Okinawa, where he lived for the remainder of his life. And uh, so he had a dojo down there in Noha. And so Tatsuo was back here, and he I don't know how that got set up, but he supposedly went and trained some with that Motobu brother. Mm -hmm. And again, it was for a brief amount of time. Um, Potentially, we got some of the uh, characteristics of the Naihanchi Kata that he did in ours, that mm -hmm. we do. Mm -hmm. But he still primarily did Naihanchi Tatsuo, did it the way mostly that Kyan did it and taught it. Okay. Some of the hand positions perhaps are similar. Um, you know, so there there is speculation on a lot of this, as we mentioned. Uh, we'll never know to the extent what Motobu Sensei's influence was. Yeah. But uh, he may, Tatsuo Sensei may have gotten the idea to have a codified set of kumite techniques or self-defense techniques from yeah. Motobu Choki. That's very likely, in my opinion. I mean, it's because he had one. He's got a set of 12, yeah. you know, the Motobu Kumite. And, uh, you know, so Tatsuo had a set of uh, self-defense techniques, about 45, 46 of them, that he would teach. But at any rate, so uh, uh, Motobu Choyu gone since the late 20s and uh, Kyan Sensei died in 45 and mm -hmm. Motobuchoki Sensei passed away in 44. Well anyway in 1942 later in the year uh, Tatsuo went to Osaka for work and it's my opinion uh, that 
it's a possibility that he got the very idea to go to Osaka specifically from Motobu, who had just moved back yep. from there, having yep. lived there for 20 years, yep. right? So, again, it's it's historically plausible. Now, I can't prove it, but that's yep. it seems very likely to me. And so, anyhow, um, Motobu Sensei's passed away as well, 44. Well, Miyagi Chojun Sensei, uh, he was put in the, the internment camp in Koza, and event and you know after, after the battle the war, of Okinawa yeah. and uh, <clears throat> he was in there as I understand it in the same camp with uh, Taira Shinken and uh, Higaseko and maybe a couple other people that were famous mm. I can't remember who all uh, but at any rate and they weren't you know they weren't prisoners in there they didn't have to stay in there they lived there but they could go mm. wherever but uh, they didn't start journeying out of there and closing the camps until you know they decided what they were going to do with the Okinawans and maybe some of them could prove that they lived you know, in whatever village they said they lived in, mm -hmm. had the property records and whatnot. Because it was almost total devastation, as you know. But mm -hmm. some families did still have their documents and say, hey, we live over here. Here's mm -hmm. our records and whatnot. Because some of them did evacuate Okinawa to Kyushu and some of these places. And they had their, their records to prove where they lived. So at that by that point in time, Tatsuo lived over in Kyan Village, and uh, which is in Gushikawa City, which is now Uruma City. And so Miyagi, as I understand it, one of his daughters had a house in Taba Village. And so he would go over there and he would visit his daughter periodically. And he would do, uh, he would teach, Miyagi-sensei would teach at the Gushikawa City Police Station and who knows where else, mm -hmm. you know. We don't know who all he was teaching mm -hmm. when he was over in the area. Mm -hmm. But but Mrs. Shimabuku said to Angi Uezu and to, you know, that's her son-in-law, and to... Uh, Greg Goodson, this gentleman who is a friend of mine that lives in Las Vegas, who's a the, the senior student of uh, Weichi Sensei. Uh, he was here at the time in the 90s, 92 to 99 in the Air Force. And uh, there was other another gentleman from Australia, Robert Slywa, who's uh, the first person to bring Yishin Karate to Australia. He was here in the 90s and was a live-in student of Master Weizu and heard this as well. But Mrs. Shimabuku said to these people, that Miyagi Sensei used to come by their house and would teach Tatsuo mm. privately. Yeah. So okay. that you know, there's some there's some uh, negative remarks about the notion that Tatsuo studied with Miyagi because they don't. Nobody seems to have remembered ever seeing Tatsuo down in Miyagi's dojo. Well, that's the reason is because yeah. it was not in Miyagi's dojo. It was in Tatsuo's house that yeah. he was receiving private instruction from Miyagi. And again, we don't know the frequency that it happened. Uh, it was. It couldn't have been longer than six to eight months, probably, because Tatsuo moved. He was able to evacuate his family to Kyushu in mainland Japan before the battle hit. Okay. So after after we bombed Okinawa in October of '44, you know he had uh, he had some horses and carts that he was he was part of the Boetai, you know, the forced labor uh, uh, corps that uh, the Japanese set up, right? Yeah. And he okay. helped fortify the Kadena Air Base over here. And so after that was bombed, you know, the Japanese government tried to evacuate people off of Okinawa, and they sent a bunch of them to Kyushu. And so he was able to get his family there. Well, Shinsho said that he very specifically gave the address. The son gave the address. So to me, that's that's there's no questioning that. That was very specific about where they had supposedly lived in Takaharu Town in Nishimorokata District of Miyazaki Prefecture. I mean, that's very specific, yeah, you know. Yeah. So to me, there's no question on that. Anyway, so they, the, the Shimabukus came back to Okinawa in 1946, late 46. Well, 
you know, you come over there in 46, 47 and visit his daughter and stuff. So Tatsuo probably studied with Miyagi briefly in for a few months, 1946 into 1947. But supposedly, according to um, some Goju-ryu people, uh, Miyagi-sensei moved back to Naha from this area, or Koza anyway, mm -hmm. in about mm -hmm. May of 1947. So that okay. put a stop to that. And again, he was never coming on with this other teacher to be his number one guy or to yep. really learn the whole style or whatever. It was just he dabbled in goju yeah. He dabbled in Motobu Choki's stuff when he had the opportunity to. Yep. Yep. And, you know, supposedly he bartered with, uh, with Motobu Choki for rice and beans and for his lessons. And, you know, he would feed Miyagi for his lessons and all that kind of stuff, yeah. you know. Uh, so, I you know, some people might not like the notion that here's Miyagi, who's a revered figure in Okinawan society, that he's taken charity, basically, from a, a farmer and a fortune teller. But, you know, this Okinawan's helping each other out. Yeah. Everybody came together after well, the war. Yeah. So. Looking, I, I don't know. I think how it depends on how everybody looks at it. Is it charity or is it just providing a meal and yeah. training and conversation? Yeah. I, I I don't know. So the story is is that he Tatsuo Sensei got Tensho Kappa, Seiyunchin Kappa, and Sanchin Kappa from Miyagi. And of course excuse me. Oh sorry. Um, you know, learned more about the Kempo Haku, which in Shindu we call the Kempo Gokui, which is the essential principles of the fist method. Okay. Fist law or whatever. So I know you've seen them mm -hmm. in the Bubishi. Right. So anyway, um, uh, Tatsuo studied these things. In my opinion, never trying to be a long-time student of Miyagi or mm -hmm. even a contender for succession in the Goju system or anything like that, you know. But a master was not necessarily in those days someone who had like a million kata and yeah. you know, all this stuff. So it was about it was about the quality of what you knew, yeah. not the quantity of what you knew. It still is that way yeah. for the most part, even though the styles here do have larger curriculums these days. Curricula these days, and. Uh, so anyway, Tatsuo had a, you know, a, a fairly uh, interesting group of kata. He had Pasai, Useishi, Naihanchi, Wansu, Chinto, Kusanku, from Kyan, and Tokomine no Kon. Mm -hmm. And they also had, from Miyagi, the three kata that I mentioned. And so um, I even read somewhere, too, supposedly from one of Tatsuo Sensei's senior guys, that Tatsuo also taught Naihanchi Nidan, but... I don't know where he got it from, mm -hmm. uh, but the Naihanchi kata are not necessarily super difficult, and they can't, uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's not out of the realm of possibility that it was fairly easy for him to pick up from somebody mm -hmm. else, mm -hmm. you know, we don't know who we got yeah. it from, but but I've never heard anybody say that Kyan Senso taught that, so it might not have been from Kyan <clears> that he got it. Well, that. I don't, yeah, I've never heard that, as a matter of fact, I've heard that Kyan Sensei didn't teach, because there's other lineages under, oh, sure, under Kyan sure. that don't do Naihanchi, right? Well, I, um, just, I have a theory on that, too. But... <laughs> About Nidan, uh, even, yeah, like you said, when you learn the Hanchi Shodan, the, the foot movement is primarily the same for Nidan Sandan, so the upper body yeah, is it's moving. Not a, it would be extremely can, difficult. You take it up in the heartbeat. Yeah, especially being a You train with other guy. people and yeah. Odo Sensei, Again. even, right? I mean, so who knows? Who knows? But Well, um, not to get too far off into the weeds, but my theory on. The reason why some lineages perhaps say that Kyan did not teach Naihanchi is because they were students later down the road. So Tatsuo Sensei, as I said, potentially started in late 19, or in, in sometime in 1927. Um, so he would have been around with Arakaki Yankichi and 
Shimabuku Taro and some of these guys, and unfortunately they died. So we couldn't ask them yeah. what Tatsuo trained, you know, taught, or, or it's not Tatsuo, but Kyan, what he taught. But Nakazato Joan, you know, he, uh, as I, if I'm not mistaken, said that Kyan taught the Maihanchi. So, um, you know, it's my belief that possibly Kyan could have just altered his curriculum. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and didn't teach Naihanchi after a certain time. Some I read somewhere that he would teach it at the agricultural school in Kadena. So he probably, you know, the school kids or the teenagers, whatever, they got Naihanchi, but maybe the ones at his dojo in his house did not after a certain time. But early yeah. students like Tatsuo maybe did. And it has since come out that, you know, even with the five-year discrepancy between 1927 and 1932 that we have, the Sabokan people have even have conceded uh, in recent years, that Tatsuo was the senior over Zendyo Shimabuku mm. because they got the property records when they were doing the research for their book that they put out in 2012, I guess it was, because they wanted to have the history straight, right? And mm. that's you know, a noble endeavor for any style. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so they had nothing but oral history to go by up to that point, basically. And so they actually got the property records for when Zendyo Sensei had moved from uh, wherever he was, Shuri or somewhere all the way up to Chatan. Mm. And so it wasn't until, as I understand it, about 1935. So it was either 1935, 1936 time frame that Zenryo-sensei started in with Kyan up in Yomitan. So Tatsuo was senior to him. Um, and there's even a photo from like early 65, I think it is, with Tatsuo in Zenryo's dojo there in, in uh, Jagaru in Chatan. Mm -hmm. And he's seated right next to, to Zenryo-sensei's right. And... and you know, not as mm -hmm. you view the pictures on the left, but, sure. uh, but on Zendyo's right, which back in the day, there was an order for seating. The most senior people were in the center. You know, yeah, the person yeah. whose dojo it was or was a host of the demonstration or whatever the case may be, whatever the event was, was the senior person as far as that went, and they were in the center of the picture typically, yep. and the next most senior was on their right, yep. and then the next most senior was on their left, yep. and it would alternate a few places. Yep. And they didn't probably do that for everybody in the group in a group yep. photo because it yep. takes too much time to do that, but for a few seats out, that would, that would kind of be, it's like a commonality in some sure. of the older photos sure. that I've yep. seen. No, it still is... I don't know how many people enforce it now, but it still is today. Yeah. Because sometimes I've heard my sensei. Yeah, you said here. Organize you sit here. It, yeah, well, that, yeah, that's why. Yeah, you know, it's kind yeah, of a traditional yeah. type thing. So, yeah. Now, I don't know necessarily that that's the reason why Tatsuo was seated there, but if he was the senior, it would fit with the norm, mm -hmm. you know, of mm -hmm. him being on the right because mm -hmm. he was a senior. So, anyway, then mm -hmm. that's that's my, my theory on that one, on that particular picture. So, anyway, so Tatsuo's got this. Uh, this set of forms that he knows at this point in time in the late 40s. And uh, since he d had trained with Miyagi-san, he started blending what he felt were the best elements of the two styles together. And, um, you know, again, a, a karate style is no better than any other. It's yep. just the master's opinion as to how techniques ought to be done or what they want to include and what they want to teach. Or not include, as the case may be. So, yeah. like, he didn't include Useishi, Gojushiho, and he didn't include Pasai, and he didn't include Ananku in, our, in what we do. But he learned them. But anyway, mm -hmm. he disregarded those kata when he was starting to make his own system. And he didn't keep Tensho because he had decided that he wanted Sanchin to be the basic kata from the Nahate, Goju Ryu, that he was going to include. Okay. And he kept Naihanchi as the 
Shorten you kind of, even yep. though some Goju schools in Nahate based schools yeah. had it back in you know in, up to the, about the 1930s. The training in again, there's no proof of this, right? But the training that he did with Miyagi children, I don't know. But is it possible that he would have even learned that? Because I've heard it that is Miyagi possible. taught So Miyagi Nahachi. did, it's my understanding that Miyagi did teach that up until about the mid-1930s. And then he stopped because he didn't like it. Yep. So people like Yagi Meitoku-sensei, yep. I understand, had that. Yeah. And there's at least two other lineages I hear that have that. It's the Higaseiko lineage has yeah. it. And also, um, oh, I forget the other one. And I, uh, I don't remember. And I think maybe even Duedu has it. Or Kojo, no, they don't do it you, but uh, Kojo do, I think, had it, or had it at one point in time. Okay. So they may not do it now, but I think at one point they did. But yeah, some of the Goju lineages did, because there was a lot of cross-pollination way back in the the day that there's not so much of anymore. So now, you know, Naihanchi is considered a Shorinru kata, and Goju is a... But there, you know, there was people from various styles. It was all karate. They didn't have codified styles so much then, up until the 30s. That's when they started cropping up, you know. And so anyway, he's putting together this collection of kata, and he's, you know, he didn't like this one, he didn't like that one, so he discarded some of these. But he kept Seisan, Seunchin from Goju-ryu, Naihanchi, Wansu, Chinto, Kusanku, and Sanchin. Okay. And he created his own kata that he called Sun-nusu for Ishin-ryu. That's his own personal kata that he created, and it has... Uh, some techniques from Goju Shiho and Pasai that he liked and wanted to keep. Okay. But the bulk, the, the bulk of those other kata he threw away and just kept those elements. But it's got some of the moves from some other Ishindu kata that he did keep and some techniques that he liked that who knows where he came up with them. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, people uh, die and uh, he's not with us since 1975 and we can't go back and ask him, yeah, why did right. you keep this and where did you get that from? But yeah, yeah can you imagine if he... Hadn't died at 66 years old if he'd lived at least into the seven, you know, to the 80s and into the 1990s, like a lot of Okinawans would have and did. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would have been another story. Perhaps we could have had some of this stuff better documented. Uh, he might have been annoyed that folks wanted to ask so many questions, but that's just <laughs> our nature. You know, we, we like to know. That's and document. especially the Western culture. Oh yeah, right? it is. It is, and the Okinawans they just, by and large, don't seem to care about. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't. You know, uh, they recording really all this don't. stuff. Yep. <clears throat> but um, can we see this, uh, sure, this picture here? So this this <clears throat> is Shimabukuro Sensei. Mm-hmm. In uh, what year would this have um, been? Honestly, I'm not 100 percent positive. I think that it was about 1960. Okay, somewhere around in there. Um, this is the formal portrait of Tatsu Shimabuku, um, and it's my understanding that his younger son. Uh, encouraged or advised his father that he should have a formal portrait made for his students yeah. so they could put it in the dojo. So that was the basis behind it. That's that's why he had it made. That's my understanding, okay. yes. Okay. Do we have any idea what's on It the... was a tomoe as far as I understand. Uh, all, right, all right. There's no clear picture that I've ever seen that actually shows in great detail what yeah. it is, but it's my understanding that it's, you know, like the, the Okinawan symbol. Yeah. Or okay. at least a similar one. Okay. Interesting. So, um, okay. I'll put this back over here. Okay. So let's let's get back into it then. I'd like to, as we move into closing it, because it's, it's been about an hour interview so far, a little bit more, and we'll pick up part two, part three, however many parts for the Ishin Ryu Chronicles we need to do. <laughs> the name Ishin Ryu itself 
When yes. when did this come about? So really you had asked previous to talk about uh, you know maybe an earlier name. So Tatsuo did uh, what he was teaching. He called Chan Miguate. Oh, Chan really? Miguate, right. So Tatsuo's I mean Kian's nickname was Chan, Chan Miguate. Miguate. Yeah, right. So so I did. Make sure the listeners know. Yeah, Kian Chotoku, that was his nickname. Which, do you recall the... Chan is the Okinawan language pronunciation of Kian. The kanji okay. for Kian. So that was his surname, right? Okay. And then Miigua, I mean, Mi and Gua, I mean, small eyes. Okay. Right? Okay. And so, so some of them called him squinty eyes. Or yeah, whatever, squinty, you know, whatever. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. he had a, an eye issue, whatever it is. Yeah. Some people, I read that he had a glass eye. Some people said he was blind in one eye. I mean, again, who knows? Uh, but yes, his nickname he was that was his name. His name was Chamigua, and so uh, the majority, if not all, of Chan's students that went on to start schools of their own, none of them named their arts the same as each other. Yeah, where they probably would have if Chan had actually had a name for his style. You know, so each one of them are calling him something different. Zenbio Sensei is calling his Seibukan. Yeah. And Nakazato Sensei yeah. is calling his Shorinjiryu. Yeah. And Tatsuo Sensei was calling his Chanmiguate. So up until he started training with Miyagi, he was teaching Kyan's Karate. Yep. And then when he started blending the things together, he was no longer genuinely teaching Chanmigua's Karate, okay. right? So that would probably be the instigator for needing a new name. So the folks that started in the late 1940s uh, in the early and by the early fifties, for sure, were saying that Tatsuo was calling what he was doing and teaching Sunusute. So Sunusu was the nickname that his uh, that the mayor of Kyan Village had given to him because he was the village tax collector. Uh, Tatsuo was, and uh, the mayor knew of Tatsuo's grandfather who had created a, a dance. Again, this is oral history. I, I, I can't document it for certain. But uh, that's the story, is that his uncle, or excuse me, that his grandfather had created a comedic boat or dance, Ryukyu dance, and uh, had named that dance Sunusu. And so the mayor of Kyan Village in the late 40s gave Tatsuo that nickname, Sunusu. So when he created his own kata, which was an amalgamation of some mm. of the characteristics of the other kata that he kept and some that he didn't keep, and gojuru technique and other things that he liked, he gave that kata that name, Sun Nusu, which we did the other evening, yeah, yeah. a couple of weeks back, right? And so Sun Nusu, and that's Okinawan language. And uh, he, later he took the word nu out of the middle, the possessive nu, which is in Japanese no, right? Mm-hmm. Took that mm-hmm. out and shortened it to Sun Su, S-U-N-S-U. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people that say Su Ansu or Su Insu or a variety of things. Mm, trying to make it right? sound similar to other but it, kata. But, it, but it's not. It's Sun Su. Yeah. Right? Sun Su. And it's not Sun Su like the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you okay, know, okay. Uh, you know, figure that everybody knows, yeah. the art of war, right? So it's not Sun Su and it's not anything else. Sun-su. It's su- if, if you know how to pronounce Okinawa or Japanese words, that's the syllables. It's Sun Su. Su. Yeah. But a lot of people will separate it in English. They'll put Su. Dash in dash su like it's su in su and it's not it's soon it's one word soon su and su in Okinawa language means father. So he went from calling what he was teaching chanmiguate to, to sun su te, te or t 
in a foreign yeah, language, right? Yeah. But again, the yeah. Japanese that the Okinawa speak, as you know, is yeah. tinged with holdovers from the Okinawa language. So it could have been tea or te, yeah. whatever, sunusute. And, and then, then in 1956, point, he decided that he would call it ishinryu, which means the one heart or wholehearted. Actually, literally, it does mean one heart, but it also can mean one mind. Well, literally, what does that mean? It doesn't really mean much. One heart? It's it's a concept that means wholehearted or complete. Okay. So Ishin, if you put the two characters together and look it up on the internet or in a book, you know, that kind of thing, it says it's, it's wholehearted. Okay. So Tatsuo Sensei 1956. Felt, yeah, January the 15th of 1956, he had called a meeting of his students, and there were a few Americans here by that point in time that were training with him, but they were new because the Marine Corps had just moved here the previous year. And uh, so anyway, they uh, had this meeting, and he says, okay, we are now going to uh, use this vertical fist with the thumb on the top, and we're going to call what we do Ishindu. We're no longer going to say it's Shorindu solely, it's Ishindu. One of the characteristics of Ishindu mm -hmm. is the vertical fist. Right, that's the hallmark of the style. Other Before that time, do you, did he... He taught the twist punch, but he did dabble in various things and so maybe he kind of went back and forth on what he wanted for what he wished to so january solidify 15th as a curriculum. Of 1956 yeah he says okay this naming. is what we're going to do um you know some of the students agreed with that and continued on and especially the americans did because they didn't know any better and they it didn't matter to them to switch from this to this because this is you know they were new it was easy for them to switch so, and they probably would have done it even if they hadn't been new because, mm -hmm. you know, the folks that are interested in learning are going to continue to learn. Whatever mm -hmm. the sensei says, they're going to do it, right? And so anyway, uh, some of the Okinawan uh, people that were training with him did not really go for that because this twist was the more common yeah. uh, and is yeah. considered the traditional way. Even though what became codified styles had vertical fist technique in the in some of their uh, repertoire, mm -hmm. that was not ever their main deal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, you know they used it sparingly as like a specialty mm -hmm, type punch. Mm -hmm. But Tatsuo Sensei decided he's going to use that mm -hmm. as his main deal because he felt it was more natural. And it's uh, actually it is anatomically stronger because when you have the fist in this position, the bones don't bow apart. And your wrist is stronger, especially mm -hmm. the higher up you get on the fist, you can squeeze mm -hmm. the thumb closer to this other finger over here, which makes this unit tighter, and the wrist is stronger. So let me show you this. I don't know if I showed you this when we were training the other, other day uh, or the other week. Hold your hand in this position, and don't let me bend your wrist in this fashion. I'm still kind of bending. Right? Mm -hmm. Okay, now turn it this way. Don't let me bend it like that. Hold it real mm -hmm, tight. Mm -hmm. it's, it's much uh, you have much more ability to resist me okay, pulling okay, on it. Okay. It's just more naturally strong. Again, it's not that this is a bad punch by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. That's not what I'm trying to say. But he, I don't know why he decided to do these experiments, if you will, yeah. or you know, just tinkering with various techniques. But he kind of stepped outside the box and and did some things that some of the Okinawans didn't think they wanted to follow. The thumb. Mm -hmm. Show me your the thumb. higher up you get on the fist, and with the thumb, it makes it you makes it so that you can squeeze the fist tighter. Actually, ah, uh, okay. Mm -hmm. So I, <coughs> so I but 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 meanwhile, you don't want to let your thumb when you're setting it on top push your lower knuckles out past your top two striking knuckles here, right? Which yeah. is a tendency that a lot of people have. They start doing this, 
you know, with that thumb and that like makes these like a hurricane. You're trying to yeah. stick that out past these knuckles and that's not what you're going for. You're making your fist as you would normally, but instead of placing the thumb over here, you're just raising it up top. And as I explained at the seminar the other uh, week, I'm not, my thumb is not weirdly twisted over. All I'm doing is I'm pulling it back and I'm setting it there, which is actually fairly easy to do. See? Mm-hmm. But you do consciously try to lie that down or lay that down and squeeze that so that this here is actually a fairly solid unit, uh -huh. okay. more so than these lower knuckles. I got you. And you're driving it in like a piston in a car engine. That's yeah. the path that it travels, right, from point A, chambered at the hip, up into the solar plexus. There's no real rotation of it. Now, some people were taught to do it perfectly vertical, and that's fine if you want to do it. I personally feel that it's a little more natural, because when you're standing there, if you're just standing, how are your arms? Are they this way? No, no they're yeah. angled, right? Yeah. So if you reach to shake somebody's hand, typically you're going to reach with your hand canted over it a little yeah. bit. So when you punch, that's a more natural position. That's what it was all about, being natural. Not so much necessarily it's got to be super strong, it's got to be super fast, but mm. what was natural, and he felt that this was a more solid and strong position, mm. and so it was his own design, if mm -hmm. you will, you know. I assume he was a fan of Makiwara. Oh, yeah, he used to punch the Makiwara a lot, and he conditioned his edges of his hand, mm -hmm. mainly the right hand and the heels of his feet. Mm -hmm. um, we have a photograph, and I've heard stories. Uh, you know, he could climb up a telephone pole and come down head first like a squirrel, too, mm -hmm. and we have one photo of him doing that, thankfully, so it's kind of nice. Um, but he's trying to, as I understand it, get off of the pole because he got a splinter in, in his arm or hand or something, and so he's trying to come down. But we have the picture. I can show it to you. And uh, we have photos of him. I had heard about this, too, that he used to, he taught my sensei because Sensei Johnson was in a dojo one day breaking bricks, and he didn't know that Tatsuo was behind him. And he said that Tatsuo taught him to curl the index finger around and place the thumb on the middle finger. And when you do that, you can squeeze that, and this muscle will pop out a little bit further. Uh, the yeah, meaty yeah. part of the hand will do that. Yeah. Rather than just trying to make the traditional hammer yeah. fist technique, right? It's just a variation. And he would do that for breaking. So he taught Sensei Johnson how to do that. And I found there's a picture of him, of Tatsuo doing that too, on the stage where he's trying to drive this 16-penny nail in a board. And he used to do that for demonstrations too. And he wouldn't try to get the board all the way wedged flat and flush into the board, but he'd get it wedged in there real well with that right hand. Hmm. And my sensei said that, you know, Tatsuo would watch the students and he'd sit there at the stoop of his house in, out into the front courtyard area where the students would train and he'd watch the students and he'd chop and condition the edge of that hand all the time, right? And so he had tremendous callus, since they said, hmm. about uh, Tatsuo having that callus on that hand so he could do that with the right hand. When he had this meeting in 1956, came up with the name for mm -hmm. Ishin Ryu and then discussed this, at this time, did he already have his dojo where... He had, he was teaching at his house in Chan Village. Okay. So I don't know exactly which point in time he got the house. That's another thing. I tried to go to the records hall, city hall, and, and find out when he bought the property. That's because it's a historical thing, I think, that needs to be solidified. Yeah. But again, like the Okinawan government is not the easiest to deal yeah. with. If you're not part of the family or don't have power of attorney and whatnot, you can't get records on stuff. It's difficult. You kind of have to know somebody to maybe do something under the table for you or whatever. But anyway, so uh, I suspect it was uh, in the, you know, by the mid 
40s that he was able to buy that property there in Chime Village, which on another day I can show it to you what yeah. it was. And so he was teaching there. He also had a dojo in uh, a class in, I wouldn't say a, a dojo, but a class where he was teaching in uh, Taitagawa, and he had one in Kombo Village, and which is on the other side of Tengang where Camp Courtney is. And he had, and again, on some of these, I don't know the exact dates that they operated, but um, by the late 40s, uh, he was teaching for sure in his home in, in Town Village in the front yard there. And uh, again, Americans, Americans were not involved quite yet, uh, not until 1955, because the 3rd Marine Division didn't relocate here until February of 55, mm. uh, based on the actual Marine Corps records that I have. And uh, so mid to late 55 is when the first Americans started training with him. And eventually, uh, somebody saw him, whether it was they were out walking in the, in the bush, or Tatsu will put on a demo in Taitagawa or wherever, yeah. and you know somebody said, "Oh, let me learn some of that." Yeah. You know, and however it came to be, the Americans started training with him, and uh, you know, the, it, it went on like gangbusters. Yeah. You know, and so did he speak English? Not really. Okay. Uh, very, very poor. Uh, what we call pigeon English. You yeah. Know? And, but he he was he was uh, creative enough that he could usually get his point across. Uh-huh. The Americans. Uh, you know, they would they would come back tell stories about what the way he talked and exactly things that he would say. Yep. You know, he would say like uh, uh, somebody said uh, that you know he would if he didn't think that a student was understanding what he's trying to tell him, even though he showed him two or three times, he'd say nobody stay. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or he'd say dummy. You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and or you know, if he's chastising something, he'd say number ten. That's the worst, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And number I think one this is the is best, a, and number yeah. ten is the worst, right? So yeah. I mean, he was creative in his language, but the Americans, by and large, understood when he really wanted to get something across to them, and especially if he really felt it was something important, they said that he would hire an interpreter. Mm-hmm. And they would come and translate specifically for it. Now, oh, how good the interpreter was, we, we don't know. We don't know if he used the same one every time. Uh, whatever, but yep. uh, some of that went on. He hired somebody to come whenever it was an occasion where he really wanted to pass something important to the students. Yeah, you know. So he called his Shindu in January of 1956 when he's teaching there at Kyan Village. Uh, some of the Americans were involved at that point in time. Uh, the the information that I have suggests strongly that it was Harold Long and Dick Keith who uh, helped Tatsuo-sensei get a contract with the Marine Corps Special Services so that they, the Marines could learn karate for free. Mm-kay. So it was not something that the Marines were required to do. It was something that they could do for fun. It was like a you know, people-to-people kind of thing. The yep. Marine Corps was trying to build bridges between the people of Okinawa and uh, the Marines and yeah. give them something positive to do. So they had two judo instructors on staff and they had two karate instructors and Tatsuo was one of them and the other okay. one was uh, Weichikane of Weichiru yeah, yeah. who had his dojo chairs for Tenma, uh-huh. right? So uh-huh. the folks down at what is now Camp Foster and some of these other places ha- had access to karate instruction as well which was of course you know just as legitimate a style yeah. uh, and top notch instruction yeah. So, yeah. so Mr. Keith and Mr. Long were the ones that uh, are credited as far as I'm concerned with uh, getting Tatsuo Sensei this contract I actually contacted Headquarters Marine Corps in Quantico to see if I could potentially get 
the contract paperwork to see exactly when it went into effect. Mr. Long put it in his book that it was he and Mr. Keith who did that, but they didn't put the exact date. Yeah. But he did say that they started training with Tatsuo about uh, three weeks or so after they got here. And that was in late July of 57 that they got here. And so right. they started in early to mid-August with him of 57. And Tatsuo bought property in Nagana because his dojo was getting... His yard was getting too small for the American, the influx yeah. of Americans that he's now getting, because they liked his stuff for whatever yeah. the reason, you know, uh, maybe just because it was uh, easy for them to learn. Uh, who knows? But uh, it kind of, in some uh, circles, got a reputation as being a style for Americans. Well, Tatsuo did not create Ishinju Karate for Americans. It was in existence, you know, as early as 1947, mm. probably or 48, even for I would say for sure. So it's about the same age as a style like Matsubayashi. So why should it not be any less important when when Nagamine Sensei also trained with Kyan mm -hmm. and also trained with Motoko Choki? Mm -hmm. So he had you know some of the same teachers and mm -hmm. some of the same pedigree. So why not Tatsuo Sensei have the same recognition mm -hmm. and be just as valid an instructor sure, in the martial sure. arts community here because of a vertical fist and a muscle bar? Oh, get out of here! Yeah. That's crazy, you know. When every generation of Okinawans are changing what they learned for the most part, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, very few of them kept it the same as what they learned it. So in 1958, in about January, he opened his dojo in Agena. Okay. And he, for a little while there, when there was that overlap of the Marines that were here at the time that there was both places, there was training still going on at both locations. But the purpose of the new dojo was to stop the training at Kyan yeah, Village. Yeah, yeah. And when those guys <clears throat> that were training at Kyan left, that was pretty much the end of it into 1958, you know. And so folks that trained there at Kyan Village were Don Nagel, who is the most senior person that we know of to have trained there. Um, he was the first person to bring Ishinju Karate back to the States and actually do something with it that we know of. Uh, we do know that there were other Marines that trained with Tatsuo, but they quit when they got back to the States where they didn't do anything with it. They didn't have any students, mm -hmm. even if they themselves continued to train once they got back home for their own personal reasons. Mm -hmm. They didn't do, they didn't make anything of it as yeah, far as teaching, yeah. uh, you know, a group of people. But Don Nagel uh, was here July 56 to September 57, and he started uh, teaching at Camp Adjourn in North Carolina, or well, in Jacksonville, technically, because it wasn't on the base. <clears throat> and, uh, and probably about January of 58 also, maybe December of 57, because I have his service record I can show you. He didn't get back to uh, check into that unit there in North Carolina until mid-November of 57. So Ishiju yeah. Karate starts no earlier than uh, November of uh, 1957. Hmm. Okay. So that's why I like to get these service records. It shows, it doesn't necessarily show, of course, when they trained with Tatsuo day by day or sure, something like sure. that, but it shows when they did or didn't. You know, because w whether they were here or not is, yeah. the, is the crux of it, and when you know when they were here. So the general time frame is uh, revealed by a lot of these records, yeah. and uh, you know it's it's a good thing that the Marine Corps kept these records, so we have it. So bring us uh, bring us to this picture. Is this a painting? It was a painting. This is not a painting. The okay. actual original was a painting. This is a copy. Okay. So this this is a. Uh, photocopy of it on a uh, colored yep. representation yep. of it. But yes, the original was a painting that yeah, he had. Sure, go ahead. So he had this uh, vision. He meditated 
um, and he had this vision in 1955. The story is that he was uh, listening to his radio and dozing off late at night, one night, and had this vision of the Dyuzu Kanon. Kanon is, the, is a Buddha, right? So Bodhisattva, right? Oh, and yeah, Japanese yeah. is Bosatsu. Well, one of the incarnations of an enlightened being in Japanese Buddhism is a Dyuzu Kanon. Dyuzu means the chief dragon. Okay. The dragon head. Not head as in that personal head, but the, the chief the, or the, the main, top, the yeah. top person, right? So, Kanon in, in Chinese is Kuan Yin. And in Japanese, it's Kanon. And so she is specifically the Dyuzu Kanon, and she's always depicted either standing, seated on, or riding, if you want to call it that, a dragon. So that's what separates mm. the run of the mill Kanon or Kuan Yin, when she's just there by herself without a dragon or whatever, right? And so she has a lot of the features of that, such as the lines across the neck, the elongated earlobes, and mm -hmm. so on, and the fact that she has a headdress. That's a headdress, that's not her hair. Mm. There's a tiger in the headdress. But anyway, so he had this vision, and supposedly this uh, deity that he saw uh, told him, it's okay for you to go forth with your own style because you have enough martial arts knowledge and do that, and create an image of me. And so he did. So he took the woman that was riding a dragon and changed it into a, a deity that is half woman and half dragon. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And now, there's there, there will never be an end to the bickering, and, and it's sad, about the name of it. Uh, you know, but a general name, a generic name, is Go Shu Jin Sama. Weizu Sensei called it that. Goshu Jinsama means like a body defense god. And Sama is the like the highest honorific. It's reserved for like samurai or the mm, emperor mm. or the shogun, right? Sama. So Goshu Jinsama. Now, many of the Americans said that Tatsuo called it Megami. Mei is female or woman and Kami is deity or spirit, right? So it's literally just female god. Mm, so that's mm, a goddess. Mm, mm -hmm. So many people just generically call it Megami also. But there are also Master Weizu, he called it and said that Tatsuo called it Mizugami, which means water mm -hmm, god. Mm -hmm. But uh, the contention between Ishindu factions is um, some people want to believe the son-in-law. Some people want to believe this person over here. Well, it's not necessarily that one has to be right and the others have to be wrong. Okinawans in Japanese in general have lots of names for the same thing. Yep. And you're like, why do they have so many names for this rock or yep. this forest or yep. whatever, right? You yep. know? So it is. It, it very well could be that Tatsuo Sensei called it these other names, you yeah. know? So Goshu Jinsama, generic name, or Megami. But, but the, the senior students that Tatsuo had when they were interviewed, uh, and, uh, Kaneshi Eiko, Kaneshiro Kenji, and Shigema Genyu, Adventula Sensei interviewed them in 1984 uh, because he wanted to get it set straight in his opinion what the real name of this thing is, right? So when he talked to those three gentlemen, Kaneshi, who was the senior, he started with Tatsuo in about 1948, but all three of those gentlemen were training with Tatsuo during the era that he had this vision, and he had explained it to them. And so, in my opinion, that's why we should listen to those folks' opinion on the matter. Mm. And people can believe and say what they want to believe. And it's not that Oezu Sensei was wrong or anybody else was wrong, necessarily. But they said 
that it had nothing to do with water. I know it's convoluted because what is this? You got the goddess in water. Yeah. So how would it would how would it have been depicted if it wasn't in water, either on the air or on the land? Yeah. Who knows? Why Tatsuo Sensei decided to have it painted in the water, we'll never know. But it sure did well, it kind of make it difficult. Out. Yeah, it does in a way. But oh you know, the theory here is, or the explanation is, this is a typhoon. And this is not so much her moving around that's swirling up the water as it is that this is a storm that okay. she's having. She's the calm within the storm. Okay. Okay. And the dragon, dragons are water entities or deities, if you will. And so the dragon rises from the ocean to return to the ocean. So okay. these are dragon, I mean the water spirits. But the argument was, was that she is not a water spirit. She is not protecting a body of water of any sort, a lake, an ocean, a stream, or a river, or whatever. So... In Kaneshi Sensei's opinion or statement was that she has nothing to do with water. So that's why it was not correct to call it Mizugami. Mm -hmm. And he said that Tatsuo called it Ishindu no Megami. So she is the protecting goddess of and for Ishindu Karate specifically. So it would not necessarily be correct to call it Mizugami. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, whatever. I'm not saying that Tatsuo never called it Mizugami. He may have. Um, and, and so he made modifications to the goddess that he saw, as I mentioned. So we have the vertical fist. I know the thumb is kind of overlapped, but that's the uh, fist yeah, up here and the open hand down below. So this is to symbolize peace, you know, and this is to symbolize the ability to defend oneself ah, okay. if necessary. Okay. Right. Um, the elongated earlobes are for alertness, as I recall. I forget what the, the lines across the neck mean, but you can see any, hmm. any number of depictions of, of the Buddha and they have, or Kuan Yin, and they have the lines across the neck. Mm -hmm. I saw them when I was stationed in Korea. Yeah, that's right. Places. They do, don't they? They do. There's a reason for that. So uh, she has a tiger in her headdress. I don't know the real reason behind that, but yeah, that's a, that's a tiger's head. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so Kaneshi Sensei said that the dragon is to represent Tatsuo. Because his nickname, Tatsuo, means dragon man. Okay. Mm -hmm. And there's three stars in the sky. Ah. And they are to light up the way in the darkness. Okay. And so you can apply the symbolism in... So some people say, well, this, this star means Kyan, and this star means Miyagi, and this uh -huh. star means... Yeah. And they do. But... Yeah. They don't necessarily have this This one star is this guy, and this one star is that guy, and this one star is this guy. Collectively, yeah. they are all of his teachers. Yeah. You know? Also, what is the kanji for one? It's a straight line. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yep. Okay. Tatsuo is the instigator, the heart of Ishindu. So, he's represented in the dragon. Ryu can be written this way to mean mode or a type or a method. It can also be dragon. So the Chinese character that he used for his name, not the Japanese character for dragon, but the Chinese one is what he did. Tatsuo mm -hmm. dragon. So Ishin Ryu mm -hmm. is written in a symbolism without the need for writing it in English or in kanji. Mm -hmm. And the original patches that were made in 1961 had both. But since Advencula, who's the one that designed the thing in the first place, said after study, further you know, uh, study of this, that he realized that the symbolism was there, or maybe he even actually had it explained to him mm -hmm. that the that the uh, symbolism explains the name so of the style. You don't do necessarily choice. need to have yeah. it. Yes, but I mean it's okay if you want to put Ishindu Karate. Most most yeah. people do. It's fine. You can put kanji. It's no big deal. Yeah. Um, some people have even kind of branched out and and modified it a little further, where they've added another star for Master Shimabuka, which to me is kind of 
I guess if you want to, sure, but there's no need to if you really know the meaning yeah. behind it in the first place because he's already there. And then some people have added another star for Shinken, you know, for, for Taira Sensei, who's the weapons instructor that Tatsuo Sensei had starting okay. in about 1958, you know. But, um, yeah, so this is the painting that he had commissioned, and they say that it was the uncle of Eiko Kaneshi, Nagamine Soshu, painted this to his ah. specifications. And so this was in his dojo. And now he never wore the patch that cre that was created in 1961, but uh, it, it was around. But the patch was always designed for the students. You know, I recently had somebody ask me, well, why, why are there no pictures with Tatsuo Sensei wearing the patch? I said, well, he didn't need to wear the patch. It was his goddess. Yeah. It was in his shrine yeah. in his dojo. Why does he need to wear the patch? And, and honestly, I don't understand why it's a big deal to some people that yeah. he didn't wear the patch. You know, but the patch was for the students. That's why. That's what the patches were created for. Right. You know, but this was the symbol for Ishindu Karate. Yeah, that's cool. You know? What year was it that he had the vision? Fifty-five. Fifty-five. Mm -hmm. So it kind of. Uh, they say that he um, meditated for a few more months yeah. or four more months yeah. to kind of figure out what he wanted to yeah. incorporate in this design. Yeah. And uh, you know, so he had this uh, painted to his specifications okay. by one of his. Students' and relatives. Then it was just 56 when he had the meeting. Mm -hmm. January of 56. So he had this January vision. <clears throat> and then within a year. Yeah, within the few, few months, months of it, it was he's made this and he's going to call the style Ishindu based on what he felt was divine inspiration. Very cool. You know? So, yeah, there's no other style, to my knowledge, of karate that has a deity of this nature. The, I know Gojuru has the, what, the Busanagashi or something of that sort, but yeah. it, it's not quite the same. Yeah. Um, and I know some people want to go further back and say, well, it's based off of this water god from India and, and you know, Mazu, this Japanese water god and all these things. It's like, well, look, you know, somebody, thankfully, and that's Advincula Sensei, took the time to investigate this stuff and felt it was important to pass along what the real scoop on this was. Yeah. And again, it's not to be derogatory to Master Weizu or any of his followers, you know, but Weizu Sensei came along a little later. And yes, he was kin to Tatsuo. But in my opinion, just because he was related to Tatsuo and was very close to him, doesn't mean that Tatsuo shared with him every single thing he ever thought about, you know. And and also too, I think perhaps that Master Weizu didn't quiz his father-in-law on some of these things as in depth as some people like to consider that. Oh, it just had to be. You Almost know? certainly not as much as and a Westerner. Again, yeah, and, it's, and it, is, it is absolutely not to be meant to be derogatory right. to Master Weizu in any way. Right. The guy was like super close to his father-in-law, and he loved the guy. I mean, you can see that in his face anytime he talked about him and everything. And I, and I was very fortunate to be able to spend some time with Master Wazer talking with him on occasion and stuff. But this is one of the things where I personally choose to believe Advincula Sensei because he got the story from three senior Okinawan students and did all the legwork on getting the patch made. He got the mm -hmm. story from Tatsuo originally anyway mm -hmm. enough to make this patch. Mm -hmm. And so he decided that he's going to I don't have my uniform around here. so But you've seen the patch. It's mm -hmm. fist-shaped, right? Mm -hmm. So he put his left fist down yeah. and traced around it and decided we're going to use this vertical fist as the border of the patch. And that's perfect, in my yeah. opinion. You yeah. know, I mean, you can't get any better than that, really. Yeah. But some people, uh, well, the story on the patch is, after he had the maid, the patch maker made the shape wrong. 
because I actually have one of the original patches over there. I'll show you. But the patch maker got the border color wrong, and he got the shape of the border wrong. And Evencula Sensei said that he wanted to have his vertical fist. Well, the patch maker put the thumb more along the side, uh -huh. and so it made it kind of wider at the top and skinnier at the bottom, as you'll see. So when some of the folks in the state started making them, they started making a more cylinder, cylindrical uh -huh. shape, right? And so the patch border color came out orange or red in some of these earlier ones. And so that got copied in the States. And, you know, uh, that people just keep making those patches like that's the real deal. It's like, but look, there is nobody in Ishinoyu, as far as I know, that disputes that it was Advencula that designed the thing. Yeah. So my argument is he would know exactly what the color and the shape of the border is supposed to be because he's the one that designed yeah. it, right? Yeah. You know? So that's why I go with that personally, and I like to do things more like what Tatsuo did in the early days of Ishindu Karate. So that that fits in line with my my group, since yeah. Johnson's group, we call ourselves old school Ishindu, and so my Ishindu Karate that I teach is an amalgamation of some of the techniques and things that were taught in the late 50s into the early 60s. So 1957 to 1961 time frame. Although I do incorporate some things that Tatsuo added later, or maybe changed a little bit later. You know. Yep. Because it's always nice to have a variety yep. and to know yep. various things that the progenitor of the style yeah. taught. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, um, I think we hit on an awful lot here, and I think we have a lot more to go. To be honest with you, I want to get into more of the, the history of, of Tatsuo Sensei and then even up to date with the training. And what I'd like to do is discuss more about the uniqueness okay. of Vision Ryu. But I think we should do that in part two. Well, that's fine. I, I, again, I, I, I don't mean to come across if anybody interpreted it as being disrespectful to the to the uh, you know the master Wezu or any other figure that's of uh, importance in our style. Um, I, I just tried to get to the bottom of as many things as I could over mm -hmm. the course and put things together. Mm -hmm. I'm like I've told a lot of people, I'm kind of a dot connector. Mm -hmm. Piece together all the puzzle mm -hmm. pieces and mm -hmm. make a better story out of it. Yep. But I do appreciate you uh, allowing me the opportunity to speak with you about. Yeah, this. and I and I, I was I told you before, and like I said in the beginning, it, it is it's on the endangered species list here yes, on Okinawa and two, uh, two schools that, anymore. Yeah, that's just not. Town. It's not good because I think anybody that does research about traditional Okinawa karate will, will whether you trained in Nishin or not, you'll come across that name. I trained in Okinawa Kempo, and I I learned about this when I was in the States mm -hmm. just from researching on the internet or whatever and I just think it's important to know about the style. Well I had a student when I was stationed in Oklahoma City and he worked for Century Martial Arts Supplies as a matter of fact and uh, he didn't want to train with me at first because he he didn't tell me this at first but I found it out later from him after he did start training with me but he was going to do Gojiru first he said and I said okay and so I left him alone about it but um and eventually he did start training with me, and he, and he shared with me, he said, you know, um, I didn't really want to train in Ishinur because I kind of felt like it was a bunch of hooey. More, I mean, that's not his exact words, but that's kind of, the, kind of the opinion that he had of it because he had heard or seen various things on the Internet up to that point, that, and he's half Japanese, and, and he's like, this just is hokey to him, you know. Mm -hmm. But actually... Having been in my classes and he could see that I could explain mm -hmm. this, that, and the other, mm -hmm. what we're really doing here, it really changed his mind because everybody was well-meaning that brought our style back to the States. Again, we owe them a debt of gratitude, Master Long and Armstrong and all these other yeah. guys, right? Um, everybody did the best they could, but you got to be kidding yourself if you think you're a karate expert after you know a year's worth yeah. of training. Yeah. So. 
these guys all meant well and they taught what they knew and we respect them or at least I do I respect yeah. them for it um, so none of my comments really in my opinion are meant to be a slam against any of them but yeah their, their education in the martial arts was kind of lacking and it was not necessarily their own fault it was just the situation they were in they had a language barrier that was great very few of them ever took the time to learn Japanese well enough to talk to the founder mm -hmm. about any of this stuff and very few of them actually came back to Okinawa for further study again that's it's just the way it was it wasn't yeah. that they oh, well I'm never going back kind of thing it's just well most people that are in the military don't do beyond their first enlistment and they don't ever have the opportunity to go yeah. back very many places yeah. potentially yeah. from going back to civilian life you know and and in those days, Okinawa was a world away, literally. So yeah, it, was it was like not was. easy to be here, and you actually had to be here for a reason. You had to either be in the military or a civil servant or something like that, yep. or you had to have the local sponsor you, which did occur, you know. But it's getting easier all the time. Yeah, it's so. easier, and things are way different than it was fifty years ago. So, you know. But yeah, it's a very uh, authentic, very uh, good style that is. It's got. Uh, a pedigree that's just as important and on par with any of the rest of the styles. And it's sad to me that it's in seemingly on its last legs here. Yeah. You know, because I know that it's a very good style. It's, well, hopefully it's not. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll try see to what keep happens. it alive. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. We'll do this again right. next time, maybe with some training or something. Yeah, we'll sure. do some techniques. So we'll, we'll set it so up. But... All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in. The Okinawa Karate Podcast. Okay, folks. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, like I said, uh, if you need to reach out to Andy, um, you can reach him on Facebook. Andy Sloan, S-L-O-A-N-E is the last name. Send him a private message. Also, he has an email address that he's willing to share. It's karateusa at hotmail.com, karateusa at hotmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, send them his way. We will likely do another interview in a few weeks so send him some comments if you if you have them or any questions and we can try to answer those for the next interview once again thank you for tuning in to the okinawa karate podcast have a nice day